0: So now, we get to chapter 4. And the argument is going to be this. If Jesus is better than Moses, then his covenant is better than Moses' covenant. But likewise, if if Jesus is better than Moses, then the rest that he provides is better than Moses. But if Jesus is better than Moses, then the consequences for disobeying Jesus is greater than Moses. So here's the point. If Moses was offering you a physical rest in a physical land, then how much better will the rest be with Jesus? And if the punishment for disobeying the law was physical death in a physical land, then how much greater will the punishment for disobeying Jesus' covenant? So in other words, the rest that God has to provide is heaven. And the punishment for disobeying it of an unbelieving heart is eternal damnation. And that's the argument. Now, we know those are the answers. We've grown up being told that whoever accepts Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior will have eternal life, but those who do not will, be, will perish. But now the author of Hebrews is telling you why those are the right answers. Because if this is how God functioned justly in the first testament then how much more will he function in the second testament with a Jesus who's better and that everything in the first testament is pointing towards Christ and so now he's giving the reason why the blessings are greater and the rest is greater and why the judgments are greater and that's what he's doing here to so chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, we must be wary, that while the promise of entering his rest remains open, none of you may seem to have come short of it. For we had good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard did them no good, since they did not join it in with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he said, as I swore in my anger, they will never enter my rest. And yet God's works were accomplished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere about the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. But to repeat the text cited earlier, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, it remains for someone to enter it. Yet those to whom it was previously proclaimed did not enter because of disobedience. So God again ordains a certain day, today, speaking through David after so long a time. As in the words quoted before, Oh, that today you would listen as he speaks, do not harden your hearts. For Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken afterward about another day. Consequently, a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. For the one who enters God's rest has also rested from his works, just as God did from his own works. Thus we must make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by following the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the point of dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow. It is able to judge the desires and the thoughts of the heart, and no creature is hidden from God, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of Him who we must render an account. Now, He's going to go back to Psalm 95 again. But instead of dealing with the moral argument, don't be like them, he's now going to focus on the typology. And the typology is the word today. And then after he focuses on the word today, he's going to focus on my. My rest. And he's going to keep repeating that over again and over again in order to make this point. So the point he makes is this. We must watch ourselves. That while the promise of entering his rest remains open, that none of you come short of it. So he's picking up right where he left off. My warning is, encourage each other so that you're not deceived by sin and your hearts become hard and you forsake the living God. Now he says it a different way. Watch yourself so that you do not fall short of a promise that still remains. And that's where this shift is. The warning was, they failed to enter the promise, past tense, because of their unbelief. But the promise still stands for us today. And that's what he's going to unpack, the today. Four, now, why must you pay attention? Well, that's none of us, like I've already mentioned. We look really good, Right. Everybody I know is involved in clubs, they're doing programs, they go to a life group, they do Bible studies, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, we had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. They heard the gospel and responded. We heard the gospel and responded. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Now, The other thing I would say here is my goal, and ultimately the author's goal, and ultimately ultimately God's goal, is not for you to walk out of here now thinking, oh my gosh, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Because he wants to give you assurance. Unfortunately, you're going to have to wait until chapter 6 for the assurance. (laughs) That's the beauty of sitting down in one sitting and studying the Bible. But, the ultimate goal is for you to have assurance. But what I will say to this is this. I think you know who you are. And chances are, it's probably not you. If you've committed yourself to come here and sit and listen to me for two hours, you're, you're, you're in the right place. Your heart's in the right desire. You have financially, time, energy, mentally, sleep, sacrificed a lot to be here. Now that's not a guarantee, but that, that, that there's a perseverance there. There's a commitment. There's, you're doing what's necessary to protect yourself. And and this isn't a guarantee either, but a lot of times I'll also say this to my students. The the, the younger ones who are less experienced, where they start getting really afraid. My, If you're worried that it's you, chances are it's probably not. Because people who are have a high-handed, unbelieving heart, they're not worried that it's them. They're not worried that they're missing out on something. And when they do get worried that they're missing out on something, it has more to do with missing out on not being punished just like them. People, once again, who are in this camp, they're afraid of the judgment. They're not worrying whether they're missing out on something really cool with God relationally. And so we'll unpack assurance a lot more in chapter 6, but that would be my little trailer preview for you right now. Do not worry if it's you. Because if you're worrying, it probably is not you. If you're making the effort to be in the Word of God, if you're making the effort to try to understand Jesus as more than just facts, or what I'm supposed to do, then it's not you. It doesn't mean that we don't have a lot more growth to do, but it means that there is growth. And, and, and salvation has less to do with how quickly you arrive and more to do with what direction you're moving. Because if God's over there in the left corner and somebody's standing really close to him, and somebody's standing really far away from him, the person standing close to him could be facing the opposite direction. And the person standing far away could be facing the God. The one that's farther away is actually closer to God because they're moving towards him. And and that's where your assurance is ultimately found. Do you have a desire for God? Do you want to know him more than just behavior and facts? Does it bother you when you sin? Do you repent? Then you're persevering. Because the, the people who aren't bothered by that, it's a show. It's a facade that they put up. So to that I would say, the worrying can sometimes be a testimony to the fact that that's not you. Because rebellious people don't worry about that stuff. Hard hearts don't worry about that stuff. So he says, Do, do not drift away. For, but the message that they heard did them no good, since they did not join it with those who heard it in faith. And there you go, once again. The gospel message is not enough. Being attracted to it, being wowed by it, being engaged with it is not enough if you do not combine it with faith. And ultimately, too, he says, that they did not join with those who heard it in faith. There, there is not just enough to have a faith in the Gospel, which faith and belief in the gospel is, is never about facts. It's always about trust. The Bible never uses the word believe and faith in a facts sense. It's always in a trust and dependency sense. So the reality is not just enough to believe. You must believe in the community. Because it's in the community that one finds salvation there's no such thing as being a lone island in Christianity. Well, I love Jesus, but I don't go to church. Now, I get that sometimes you're in transition and it's hard to find a good church. But that's a lot different than I don't go to church. Because they're all screw-ups over there. Well, so are you. That's why you need Jesus. And that's what he's saying. It's not just... I heard the gospel, it's not just I was attracted to the gospel, it's not just that I was wowed by the gospel, it's that I trust the gospel, I depend upon the gospel, I need the gospel. And every time I sin, and every time I wonder if it's me, that's a constant reminder of how much I more I need the gospel. And then I know that the only way that I can truly keep desiring the gospel is if I'm in a community of people who desire the gospel. Because they encourage me. Because there's always going to be times that one of us is not into the gospel at that moment. And I need each other. 4. Verse 3. We do not have... We who have believed entered that rest, as He has said, as I swore in my anger, they will not enter. If you have belief, you will enter. No, that's all He says. If you believe, you will enter. Period. He doesn't go, and then, and then, and then, and then. He says, if you believe, you will enter. And yet God's works were accomplished from the foundation of the world. Now he begins to make the transition. The rest is the promised land. Now he's talking about God's works. But God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. So what are God's, what is God's rest? What rest is he talking about? Where did God rest? Heaven. It's a Sunday school answer. (laughs) So now he switches and says, but God rested at the foundation of the earth. So God's rest is heaven. And he goes back to Genesis chapter 2 to make the point. Once again, he's quoting the First Testament. God rested and Saul that was good. Well, where was he? He was in heaven. And so that's God's rest. Now that's very important because we're, we're transitioning in this argument. They failed to enter the rest of a land and a physical geographical territory called Israel. Now there's a different rest we're talking about, and that different rest is God's rest. And God rests in heaven. But, verse 5, to repeat the text earlier cited, they will never enter my rest. Now he begins to play on the my. So what did he just say was God's rest? Heaven. So because they failed to have belief for the physical land, that translated into the rest because they refused to enter the physical land. But God turned around and said, because you do not have belief, you will not enter my rest. So now he's making the transition from a physical land to a spiritual location where God is. Where God was going to symbolically dwell with them through a pillar of fire, to where God literally dwells in the full glory of His presence. And because they did not have belief for the physical typology, they were unable to enter the true rest that that typology was pointing towards. Does that make sense? Therefore, it remains for some to enter it, yet those to whom it was previously proclaimed did not enter because of their disobedience. Once again, He keeps hitting this. Going back. So God again ordains a certain day, today, speaking through David, after so long a time as in the words quoted before. Oh, that today you will listen as he speaks. Do not harden your hearts. So now he says, look, this is the typology. The today was for them. And that that literal day, after being in the wilderness, God said, today you're going to go in the land. They're like, no, we're not. Can't do it. And once they said no, God said, today is over with. You're now judged. So the fear would not be like, was there another today? Well, there is for the next generation. So now he goes on, he makes the point that, so Joshua leads them into the promised land. The book of Joshua makes it very clear, that God tells you that Joshua gave them rest. He provided the rest for them. But then David comes along about... 400 years later. And David writes a psalm and says, Today! into to the rest. But God said in David's time that David also, God had provided rest from all of David's enemies. So if Joshua is in the land and provides them a very physical entrance into the land, and David's in the land, and God has provided them a very physical rest from their enemies. So they're in the land that's promised, and they no longer have any conflict with their enemies anymore, they truly can live at peace, not worrying about anything anymore, then why does David call us to enter God's rest today, if they've already entered the rest? That's going to be his argument. Therefore, every single time you read the living word of God, and you come to Psalm 95, and Psalm says, God says, today enter the rest, then that means that there's a rest for you to enter today. And it means that that must not have been the rest that God was talking about. Because he goes on and says this, Verse 7, So God again ordains a certain day, today, speaking through David, after so long that today you would listen and speak, do not harden your hearts. For, here's the reason why, if Joshua had given the rest, God would not have spoken afterward about another day. So if just entering the physical land and just having peace from your enemies was all the rest that God was talking about, then why does God have Psalm 95 written and encourage you to enter His rest today? And then you read again tomorrow, and it's another today. And you read again tomorrow, and it's another today. And that's his point. As long as you keep reading the Psalms, you're constantly encouraged to enter His rest today. Therefore, the rest that he's truly talking about cannot be the one that Joshua gave them because Joshua did provide them rest, so did David, but God talks about another today. And now he's going to connect them. So if God's rest is heaven, and if God's talking about entering his rest keeps talking about it, even though they have already entered the rest, then the rest that he's ultimately talking about must be heaven. Now, once again, we already know this answer. Now you know why is the answer. Consequently, a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. For the one who enters God's rest has also rested from his works just as God did from his own works. Now there's the connection. Therefore, there must be a greater rest that God has been talking about all throughout the Bible because Joshua and David provided them a rest, and yet God keeps saying, today enters rest, today enters rest. And they're all, they're all sitting there thinking, we are, God, we're here. Why do you keep talking about entering rest? We're right here. It's like somebody's sitting in the living room in your house, and you're like, come into my house, come on. It's okay, come into my house. And you're like, I am in your house. Therefore, there must be a greater house, a greater rest that he's talking about. Well, the only other rest that there can be is the one that God rested in. Therefore, consequently, the one who enters that Sabbath rest that God's ultimately talking about enters the exact same rest that God rested in. Now, the Sabbath is not Saturday here because every single day is a today. And there's only one Saturday is a week. So the Sabbath rest is today. And when tomorrow comes, it's today. today. When tomorrow comes, it's today. And when they're sitting in the land every single day of the week, they're in the Sabbath rest. Yet it's not Saturday every single day. Now, Sabbath is Saturday, but the point that the other authors of the New Testament are going to make is that the Sabbath, Saturday, was meant to point to a greater Sabbath. Because Sabbath means to cease or to rest. It means both. And so what he's saying is, it's not just about some Saturday Sabbath, There are actually several Sabbaths. There was a Saturday Sabbath. Then there was the high Sabbath. There were seven extra Sabbaths every year called the Lord's Festivals. And then there was the seven-year Sabbath that came every seven years. And then there was a Sabbath that came every 50 years. And you see all those are just pointing. Notice how they get bigger and longer every time. One day. And then festivals, that last a week. And then a year that comes every seventh year. And then a 50th year, which everybody was freed from their slavery, all their debts. Because what God does is He does it, and He does it again bigger. And He does it again bigger. And so what is the ultimate Sabbath? My rest. So, if Joshua provided you a rest, but Jesus is greater than Joshua... And Jesus provides a greater rest. And here's the typology too. Moses was a prophet who gave the people, he was a mediator. He mediated between the people and God and he helped draw the people closer to God. And he did that through multiple ways. The tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the law. Joshua was a military leader who brought them into the rest by conquering all the enemies. Joshua literally means Yahweh is salvation. If you translate Joshua into the Greek, it's Jesus. And Jesus literally means Jesus, Yahweh is my salvation. So the first coming of Jesus, Jesus acts as a prophet that mediates our relationship with God by dying on the cross and allowing us to come close to God. Just like Moses was to bring the people closer and closer. But the second coming of Jesus Christ, he's a military leader who's going to conquer all the enemies and usher us into heaven, where we will physically dwell there, just like Joshua did. See how everything points to Jesus? Moses and Joshua are the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. Prophet and warrior, lawgiver, cross, and bring us in the promised land. So if God keeps talking about another today, then there must be a greater Joshua a greater conquest, and a greater promised land. And Jesus is better. Everything points to Jesus. Even the people do. Thus, we must make every effort to enter that rest so that none of us may fall by following the same pattern of disobedience. Notice the pattern. What's the pattern? The pattern was ungratefulness. Over and over it just started with grumbling. They just complained. Oh, we don't have enough this. We don't have enough this. We don't have enough this. Then that complaining moved to the word grumbling. Grumbling means I'm actually against you. In the beginning they just complain. Anybody can complain. We complain. But then grumbling is where it becomes a community effort where now we're like, we're against them. Let's kill this Moses and get another leader. We can get something better. Then the grumbling turned into a rejection of God's character. He just brought us out here to kill us. And then it revealed that their hearts were truly hard, that they never ever repented, because they never had unbelief. So don't follow that pattern. If you find yourself complaining, let that be a warning, that it could turn into grumbling with the community. And if you find that... Then let that be a warning that that could be turning your heart into an evil heart that is getting very, very, very hard and is beginning to reveal that you never really truly had a two salvation that's going to lead you to a forsaking because you are unbelieving and you will miss out on the rest. So, complaining and grumbling is the first warning signs. Do so, make every effort. To not follow that pattern. To not follow that pattern of disobedience. He calls it what it is. Four. Now, here's where he goes. Four. The Word of God is sharper than a double edged sword, it can pierce through physical and spiritual. It exposes everything that is hidden, even the most inner thoughts desires in your heart. Everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of Him who we must give an account to. Why is that following here? They heard the Gospel. They were saved from. They followed the Holy Spirit out of the wilderness. They were baptized. They trusted in the blood of the Lamb. And ultimately, their perseverance showed, their lack of perseverance showed that they had a hard evil, unbelieving heart that forsook him and despised him. So you, you guard yourself. You encourage each other. You encourage each other to not follow that pattern, lest you not enter his greater rest. And don't think you can fool people, because God, his word, When you read it, it pierces into your innermost beings. And you may have a lot of people fooled, but God sees your heart, and He sees it for what it really is, and He will expose everything. And no matter how much you think you have people fooled, they are not the ones you answer to one day. He is. And you want another good example? Saul and David. Saul looked really good. I mean, God even said, I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. And outwardly, Saul looked good. But every single time Samuel came and said, You've sinned, Saul's response was, Oh, no, 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 I haven't. It's okay. I know God told me to kill all the animals, but I kept these alive because I'm going to sacrifice them to God. That makes it okay. I haven't sinned. And Saul says, God has rejected you. And he's killed. He's killed. And eventually Saul couldn't kind of persevere and he so did not persevere to the point that he killed 85 of God's priests, cold-blooded, in the temple of God, the tabernacle, where David, he sometimes didn't look at. He raped a woman, he killed her husband, and not including all the troops that he also set to kill in battle to cover it all up. Every single time God came to him and said, you sin, he said, I am, you're so right, I am so wrong. And you read the Psalms and you see a heart that was disobedient, but a heart that hated that disobedience and constantly wanted God and constantly cried out to Him, constantly said, please, God, don't leave me. I know I've given you every reason to leave me, but please don't leave me. Because then God said, He's a man after my own heart. And you're like, what? (laughs) After He did that? Yeah. Because the Word of God pierces into the innermost of the being of everyone. And God looks at the heart, and that's what he judges. And sometimes your fruit may not always look like it, but David always repented. He always persevered. He always desired God. And when he did complain, he always complained to God, expecting God to honor his promises, like Habakkuk, where the people complained to each other to say, yeah, that's right, let's leave this and go somewhere better. And that was the big difference. And so this is what he's pointing to. Do not try so hard to fool people that you are beginning to fool yourself. Pay attention to the patterns in your life. Pay attention to your heart desire. If you don't like what you see, then do something about it. And the fact that you want to do something about it, that should be an encouragement to you. That there's something really truly alive transforming you. You know what to do about it? You get in the community of believers all the time like we are now, and you get in the Word of God, and you have prayer groups, and you hear testimonies, you encourage each other. These are the things that you do. But ultimately speaking, you keep going back to the object of your hope. Jesus is better. Jesus has a better covenant. Jesus has a better rest. Jesus is your God-man. Your high priest. He's your king that can handle anything. But he's your priest that you can go to anything. To him with anything. And so this is what he's going to keep doing. He's going to keep bouncing back and forth. He's going to remind you of how amazing Christ is and how much better he is than everything. But then he's going to go back and say, aren't you attracted to that? Aren't you desiring that? If you are, then get together with other people who desire that and keep encouraging each other. Keep persevering. Because those who persevere, those who hold on to the faith, they will enter his rest. Because Moses might have been able to see God face to face, so to speak. And here's the thing. Moses comes to God and says, I want to see your glory. God says, you can't because it will kill you. But what I'll do is I'll stick you in this little crack in the wall, this tiny little crack where you'll be able to glimpse me a little bit. I'll cover you with my hand, and then I'll just show you my back really quick. And that makes his face shine so bright that nobody can look at him because they feel like they're looking at the sun. And even that began to fade over time. You come to Daniel, and Daniel says, the believers, when we are ushered into the presence of God and the kingdom of God, we will shine like the stars. And Paul comes along and says that that glory will not fade. Jesus is the glory that does not fade. And if you are literally physically in the presence of Christ, then it will never fade because you're never leaving the presence. Because Moses can only take so much and had to come back down from the mountain. We will be on the mountain forever in his presence, never coming down again. And so here's the point. If that's what Moses had, then can you imagine what you will have when you enter his rest? My rest. The greater rest. where you're no longer in the house, but you're sitting next to the builder of the house who says, I'm not ashamed to stand in your presence and call you brothers and sisters. This is what he keeps pointing towards. Yes, it's deep theology, but has a very real experiential application to it. And that's what we keep trying to, clinging to without the logic, the reason, and theology, then there's nothing that spurs us on. And then it just feels like you're just hearing the same tail show all over again. But there's just so much more there. And I think heaven, if God gave us a desire to create, and if God gave us a desire to explore, and God is an explorer and a creator himself, and we are in his image, then heaven is going to be an endless creation and exploration. It's not going to end. It's just going to keep going. There will always be more rest to enter into. Because God is unfathomable. And the beauty of his is we'll never get bored with Him. There will never be more to learn. There will always be more to learn. And that's what He's saying. With Allah, He doesn't care. In fact, if you just happen to make it to heaven, paradise... Yeah, probably won't be with him. Because he never ever talks about him being with you. He just talks about you getting paradise. That's it. (coughs) Buddhism? Oh, don't know really what's out there, but you should follow me. I'll tell you the path to enlightenment, even though I have no idea what's on the other side. Hinduism? You just... Try to, through your own works, achieve Godhood, and once you achieve it, you're just absorbed into the God force, and your identity, your personality, your individuality is completely lost and absorbed like a drop in the ocean. You never can find that drop again. Atheism, you're just a random mistake anyways, and you're just going to die and become worm food. You can enter my rest, because I sent my Son to stand in your midst and blaze the trail to heaven. If only you just have hope and faith. No works. Jesus is better. Lord, I thank you and praise you so much that there is no God, there is no being, there is no philosophy, there is no worldview like you. And all their philosophies are so simple. And yes, sometimes we feel overwhelmed with the complexity of who you are and your theology and your Bible And we feel like sometimes we'll never get it or it goes over our head. Or, But at the same time, that's the beauty to it. Because you are the living God. And we thank you that you are not so easily understood or so easily boxed. Because you provide better, better things. Because you are better. I pray that you give us the ability to encourage each other, to walk next to each other's side, to really truly enter each other's lives so that we can see those patterns in our own lives, we can see those patterns in each other's, and we can lovingly encourage each other not to condemn, and not out of fear of losing something, but because we just so much desire you. Desire is a much better motivation than a fear of losing something. Let us be more like Jesus than the wilderness generation. And let us give us the words to communicate Jesus to the wilderness generation around us. In Jesus' name, amen.